Amen. Father, as our Lord and Savior Jesus owns a perfect picture of obedience, taking on the cause, the calling of redemption, and offering Himself, Lord, as a sacrifice for our sins, I pray that He would be our inspiration, that we likewise would offer ourselves as living sacrifices to the glory of Your kingdom. Our sacrifice cannot save, but we pray that it would be worthy worship because we are saved by the sacrifice of Jesus, that we would be motivated to lay our lives down, to take up our cross, and to follow Him wherever that might lead. We thank You, Lord, for the testimony of Scripture, the evidences from of old, the prophecies of the past, the types that were fulfilled in Jesus, and how, Lord, they speak to the universal language of redemption that You proclaimed from the day that hope was proclaimed in the garden until the day that You revealed the Word made flesh in time. We thank you, Lord, that that word remains with us. We pray that as it's written in these pages, so it would be written in our hearts. And as it was, Lord, in faith believed by the saints who have gone before, we too pray that we would walk according to its ways, according to its precepts. We also pray if there are any in the hearing of this message who have not turned to Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord, that the scriptures proclaimed in their hearing today would yield repentance and faith the Spirit would convict them of their sin that they might turn to the only way of salvation, Jesus Christ alone. In His name we pray. Amen. Hallelujah. Well, let me first apologize that my voice isn't this awesome every Sunday. Hopefully it'll last for the duration of this message today. So with this newfound authority in my vocal cords, I am here to proclaim to you the Word of God from Genesis 50, 22 through 26. So turn there with me as you're able. This morning, the title of our sermon is God Will Visit. These are three words that are stated twice in the confession of Joseph as he is coming to die. Verse 24 and verse 25 of our passage today, Joseph assures those who he leaves behind, those who survive him, his brothers, his family, his children, and so forth, God will surely visit you. Today we will see how this is a fitting capstone and proclamation of hope for the closing of the first book of the Bible. And today I seek to do this in part by an overview of Joseph's life. So it's come to kind of be a pattern for me in closing a book to do an overview of the book, which I still plan to do for Genesis. Joseph's life, though lengthy and significant as the record is, 37, chapter 37 through 50, I thought it appropriate to do an overview of his life as well. That's my aim today, to proclaim the gospel of Jesus pictured in an overview of the life of Joseph. With that introduction in your heart stand, uh, and your uh, standing in reverence for the word and your heart open to receive the same, let us behold the scriptures together in Genesis 50, 22 through 26. Here is the word of God. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. 
This is the Word of God in the close of Genesis. You may be seated. So this morning, at the close of this message, I plan to return to this text. But in a moment, we'll get a little review by touching upon a few passages. This is one of those sermons where, if you have your Bible with, you might be flipping a little bit more, some preparation of those passages. You can mark Genesis 37, right in there, 39, also 41. These are signal moments in the life of Joseph that stand as milestones, that kind of give us a picture of his story and its importance as it fits into God's purposes for his life and the revelation of his word and plan to save mankind, those who place their faith in him. An overview of Joseph's life reveals striking parallels. We've mentioned this along the way. It, Joseph's life reveals striking parallels in his calling and ministry to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the ultimate Messiah, stooping low to save his people. Joseph is an early, if you will, messianic prototype, prototype Messiah, joining the testimony of Melchizedek, we mentioned last week, who came before him, an early priest king, so to speak. We have Joseph himself in his life and ministry prefiguring the king of kings. In other words, Melchizedek and Joseph alike held out hope that there would be another priest king to come who would arise to save. His name is Jesus Christ. A unique aspect of the record of Joseph's life in Scripture is the relative lack of personal sin and human moral weakness. Most of the stories of our quote-unquote heroes in Scripture include real bad sections where they prove by their life and actions to be a sinner. Now, Joseph, no doubt, was a sinner, and no doubt there's plenty to record in this regard. It's interesting, though, that the Bible does not focus on the vices of Joseph, but rather his virtues are highlighted. His virtue is prominently displayed in the purposes of God, I submit to foreshadow the truly sinless Savior, and that would be Jesus Christ, who never sinned, and therefore, by the power of a sinless life, and by the power of an everlasting life, as the priest king to come was able to save to the uttermost and sufficiently all his own. Instead, uh, this being noted, by the way, this kind of lack of a testimony of Joseph's sin, at least, recorded in the text. In our passage today, we have perhaps the greatest reminder of Joseph's sinfulness. And that is this recurring theme, the course of Genesis, that reminds us of the problem since the fall. <clears throat> the problem for mankind since the fall is that the estate of man includes sin or death as the wages of sin. Joseph's sinfulness and the estate of man since the fall comes to us clearly. We are reminded of it in our passage today. Joseph has succumbed to the curse and the estate are at, and this and with this a jarring reminder throughout the book of Genesis that just as the presence of death ought to be in our own experience. Remind, just to remind you back in the early days of Adam and Eve's childbearing years, there was this hope that perhaps the next son that Eve would have would be the Messiah, <clears throat> seed of the woman, to crush the serpent's head. And as each son died, and that record of the patriarchs with each of them dying in the text, so it's this reminder, he was not our ultimate priest king. He was not our Messiah. He succumbed like all the sinners before him in Adam, 
to the wages of our parents. First, uh, transgressions against the Lord and all of us born in sin, adding to those transgressions, that wa- the wages, the consequences, the judgment for what we deserve, death itself. Just an application, a reminder for you guys. We've mentioned in the past how our society has a poor relationship with death. Ask yourself, what is the message of death? Well, many people lean on many things as a crutch to deal with the reality of death. And for most people, that's all heaven is. It's a figment of their imagination as a crutch to deal with the reality, the pain of losing someone or the fear of losing your own life. Heaven is much more than that. Heaven is a place of God's holiness purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ and only those who know him as their Savior and Lord are allowed to enter. Heaven is a picture of Mount Sinai with the door thrown open through the blood of Jesus that becomes Mount Zion for those who can ascend, as we have sung, God's holy hill only because of Jesus Christ. Every death should remind us that there is a judgment to come. When we walk through a graveyard, when there's a death in our family, when we hear of a tragic situation, at least from our vantage point, of a loss of life, it's an opportunity, parents, to remind our children the message of death. Two things. First of all, the wages of sin. We all must die, and deservedly so. Secondly, if you know Jesus Christ, you will rise from the dead. You will enter heaven uh, gloriously and eternally. This reminder of death is in our passage yet again today as Joseph succumbs to the last enemy. The great theme of Joseph's life, we've mentioned this in the past, I think it bears repeating. If I could summarize in two words the theme of Joseph's life and ministry, messianic ascension. Back to the picture of Joseph as a prefiguring of Christ, messianic ascension, messianic Messiah, ascension to rise. Joseph arises to save and to rule. That's the shape of his life, biography. Features of Joseph's exaltation involve everything from his rise in a state from a one-time slave to cosmic triumph over the gods and nations that dominated the world at the time as they, Pharaoh and Egypt, bows before the anointed son who rules according to the spirit of Yahweh. More details through his life also involving temptation, garments, dreams, calling or vocation, Dominion, provision in famine times, covenant restoration of his family, progeny, future sons, sons of Jacob, royalty, authority, and even the destiny of his, of his bones, like his father. He made his, uh, those who survived him commit, carry up his bones from here, back to the place of God's promises. All these details speak to this theme in Joseph's life, messianic ascension arising to save and rule as a hopeful beacon for what will come. Joseph's life and the shape of his story, even as these things foreshadow the life of Jesus uh, to come, we consider these major events today. As the book of Genesis closes, we're reminded that the revelation of God's plan to save man has just begun. That is, God will surely visit his people again. Amen. Here's a a heading that includes three chapters of Joseph's life that I will submit shape his story. Let me reference those as we uh, touch upon them this morning and compare them to Jesus. Number one, favor and glory. Joseph's life begins in chapter 37. You can turn there with favor and glory. Secondly, 
humiliation and trial. In chapters 37 and 39, we'll pick up on a few notes. Thirdly, exaltation and reign. So let's first begin in Genesis 37, where his story picks up. And you'll recall, Joseph is 17 at the time. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, that is the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. That's a phrase in the text that sets apart a change in chapter to draw our attention to something significant or a person of significance to come or, or to behold. And in this case, it's Joseph himself. <clears throat> 37.2 37.2 Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhan Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a, brought a bad report of them to their father. Verse 3, uh, pay close attention to this. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And what did he make him, kids? To indicate Joseph's favor, or Jacob's favor of Joseph, he gave him a special gift. Kids, can you remind us what that was? Very good. He made him a robe, or as Fiona reminds us, a coat of many colors. Verse 4. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Then Joseph begins to dream as the word of the Lord is revealed to him. So although very briefly in the record, Joseph, from year one all the way to 17, his life and the privileges of his relationship, especially with his father and his family, could be described by these terms, favor and glory. He was a favorite son of his aging dad. He was blessed and privileged in that home, even above his brothers. Now, we could argue as to the wisdom of this. In humanity, you know, in, with our children, parents, and so forth, we question the wisdom, and rightfully so. We should not, that is, to say, favor one child above the other. But there's something about Joseph's story that speaks more than just a lesson on morality or wisdom within the home. It's also a picture of Jesus Christ and the conditions that he enjoyed before he was humiliated in the purpose or according to God's plan to save his people. That is to say, before Jesus ever came to earth, before he was born of a virgin Mary, before he took on flesh and was born and was conceived in the womb of a human mother, he enjoyed the favor and glory of eternity and as the second person of the Trinity and in perfect, amazing relationship with his father, that is to say, God the Father. The father-son dynamic between Jacob and Joseph provides something of a picture or an analogy in an earthly family relationship of the relationship between the first and second persons of the Trinity. Now this will be expanded later. You can turn with me. We'll touch upon it in a moment. John 17. Uh, we touched upon this. It was really providential. Uh, Phil was leading our study on the Trinity. If you haven't been able to come, I highly recommend it. Once a month where we meet to discuss uh, fruitful meditations on what it is, what it means that God is one in being and three in person. There's a passage in Scripture where we get what I like to think of as uh, an eavesdrop. We get to eavesdrop on the Trinity. That is to say, a conversation between Jesus and God the Father. God the Son and God the Father is taking place in John 17. And it is amazing indeed. Verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. 
we see that two persons, these two persons of the Trinity, the Godhead, in communication with one another, is obvious in our text. Jesus is praying. Who is he praying to? He is speaking with God the Father, his Father. Since you have given him authority over all flesh, Jesus continues, verse 2, to give eternal life to those you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Speaking of himself in the third person. Verse 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And 5, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the foundation, or before the world existed. Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. As Joseph arises to rule, there is something of a pre-rise or a condition of his favor and glory that he enjoyed in the household. His robe spoke of royalty and the favor his father had for him. His relationship was special with his father and reminds us of the relationship between the father and the son to come. Joseph's coat of many colors and his favored status in Jacob's household might keep, be compared to the prior estate of Jesus, what we technically say in theology, his pre-incarnate glory. Or where was Jesus and what was he doing? That question that was raised in our study text that we talked about on Friday, before he was born, or even before creation. And the answer is, he was in perfect unity, harmony, and a relationship of favor and glory with his father. So Joseph's story has some foreshadowing, some typology, some indicators, some symbolic aspects to it that remind us of the shape of Jesus' life, including his pre-incarnate state. Then we have this, the obedience of the son, pictured here. Joseph is following instructions by his father to go out and check on his brother's when his brothers saw, uh, uh, as, as, uh, Joseph is obedient to this task, we're reminded that he was a good son, presumably. Joseph had a will and a determination to please and honor his father. If his father sent him on a mission, he would obey, and as he did in this case. Of course, the obedience of Jesus Christ is in view as we consider this as well. That is to say, Jesus infinitely surpassed the relationship of honor and respect and obedience that Joseph had with his father. Yet it corresponds to this picture, and this corresponding obedience of Jesus to the Father's will is also pictured in the New Testament. Without time to turn there, John chapter 6, 35 through 40, Jesus says that by his will is to obey the Father who has sent him. He recognizes that in the Godhead, in the Trinity, there was a plan by the Father to send the Son. And the Son obediently submitted to the Father's will and came to take on flesh and to take on our sin on Calvary. And the Spirit anointed him at his baptism to do exactly this. And thus, because of the obedience of Jesus Christ, he is our Messiah who ascends to save and rule. If Jesus had not been obedient to the Father, passively we speak of two senses in which Jesus was obedient, one is his passive obedience, and one is his active. If he hadn't been obedient to the Father passively, that is, submitting himself 
to the justice and wrath of God in the death on Calvary, submitting himself to taking on flesh and becoming a human, and that is, I will submit to these things put upon me, then he could not be our Savior. If If Jesus had not been actively obedient, that is, in every jot and tittle and every detail when tested in this life, followed the law of God, the way we see in Matthew chapter 4, we might touch on that passage in a minute, there is no way that we could have been saved. Because the righteousness that Jesus accrued in satisfying the conditions of the covenant, perfect, exact obedience, becomes the righteousness that is counted to us when we are saved. When we are saved, there's a great exchange. As the reformers were often fond of saying, Jesus takes upon our sin, takes upon himself our sin. Let's trade Jesus says to the sinner, I will take your sin and suffer and die for you. You will take my righteousness and be counted holy before God the Father. What righteousness? The righteousness that is the obedience of Jesus Christ, submitting to the Father's will and absolutely following his law perfectly when tested. The favor, glory, and obedience of Joseph prefigures a Messiah who would ascend to save and rule to come. That's point number one. Point number two, humiliation and trial. Turn with me uh, very quickly in our text. Uh, Back in Genesis 37, the circumstances change, and they change quite dramatically. You remember, but let me remind you, the terms or some of the conditions of the humiliation and trial of Joseph. That which he endured, which we find in a sense, would be, and he recognizes this, the cost of, of the redemption, or a cost, if you will, of the salvation of the people. In other words, if Joseph had not experienced all this, he would not have traveled to Egypt and be in a position to save his family from famine. Verse 26, Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brothers and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. His brothers listened to him, Then Midianite uh, traders passed by. They drew Joseph up. Interesting language. He was in a pit, and now he's pulled out. And lifted him out of the pit, sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. And later they deceived their father in this sort of false atonement ritual by shedding the blood of an animal to try to cover up their sin. It failed, of course, and that guilt followed them all the way to chapter 50, where they plead with Joseph not to kill them on account of what they did to him. And Joseph extends grace rather than wrath. Humiliation and trial. Joseph was betrayed. Jesus was betrayed. John 1:11. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Genesis, as we've just read, 37 records the betrayal of Joseph by his loved ones, or by those who are supposed to care most about him, his brothers. They profited off of the money that he was worth as a slave. And although they wanted to kill him and certainly had a heart of murder toward him, they decided, what use would that be? Let's get a few dollars in exchange for our brother. Who cares what happens to him? We despise and resent the fact that he is favored by our father. We mentioned at the time, but what should the brothers have done? They should have asked. What is it specifically about an anointed or appointed covenant son that might speak something to God's purposes in the future? 
You see, the pattern of God calling one above another for specific purposes and saving a people, that had preceded the brothers. But they could care less why God chose uh, Esau, uh, Jacob over Esau or um, earlier Isaac over Ishmael. They weren't concerned with the gospel at this time. Rather, they were serving their own selves and their flesh. And thus, motivated by their sin, they betrayed their brother. Jesus proclaims in the parable of the tenants in Matthew 21 that this same kind of thing will happen to him. And ironically, in the text, those, his hearers among them, chief, uh, chief priests and scribes, or Pharisees, they fulfill his very words as he speaks them. This is uh, Matthew 21. You might turn there with me if you're able. This is a parable that Jesus gives to describe the betrayal of the Son of Man. Here another parable, verse 33. There is a master of a house who planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it, built a tower and leased it to tenants, went to another country. He comes back, of course, or he uh, sends someone. The tenants took his servants that he sent, verse 35, beat one, killed another, stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first. They did the same to them. In a, pausing there, in a sense, Joseph was a servant sent to the brothers to proclaim something of God's purposes in the future. And in a sense, like the prophets that would follow him, instead of being accepted and God's word being treasured, remember his dreams, that was God's word, they instead abused and betrayed him, resented what he said. This would be a pattern all, that would follow the rebellious people all through the ages, even to the coming of Jesus Christ. Verse 37, Jesus says it this way, parable form. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. It is God the Father sending God the Son in this picture, 38. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. They took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. And when, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these tenants? I said to him, It will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? This is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. He says, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. In verse 45, when the chief priests and Pharisees heard this parable, they perceived that he was speaking about them. They perceived correctly. He was speaking about them. Notice 46. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. They didn't fear God and take to heart what Jesus said. No, they looked for a better opportunity to arrest, betray, and abuse the only Messiah who could save. Here, the betrayal of Jesus was prophesied and it wouldn't be long. It's a few chapters over when Jesus himself would be condemned falsely and would be betrayed by those of his own people who he came to give the gospel of salvation. In his humiliation and trial, Joseph not only was betrayed, but there was a test as well. You remember the testing of Joseph, do you not? It's picked up in uh, Genesis 39. He's been sold to Potiphar. He's serving in his house. He's a handsome guy, we come to find. And there's a temptation that this yields him. One day, verse 11, Genesis 39 when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house were in the house, she, says the mist, or this is his uh, master's wife, caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled, got out of the house. 
Of course, as soon as he left, she lied about him, used that garment to frame him, and thus he received his jail sentence. The humiliation and trial of Joseph continues. First, with betrayal by his brothers. Secondly, they sell him into slavery. Thirdly, he is tested in this way, does not commit adultery, although the price for his obedience will be being thrown in prison, he might be discouraged to realize. Yet Joseph was a man of faith. He knew that God had purposes, that even should it be his will, Joseph himself might arise out of that pit, out of that prison. We find later, of course, he does. In Matthew 27, read it on your own time, perhaps, Jesus is being condemned to die. They give him a mock trial after mock trial. He's abused, and he himself goes through similar circumstances as Joseph. Uh, his clothing is used as an instrument of uh, humiliation against him, just as Joseph's clothing was used multiple times. Here, his garment was used to frame him. Earlier, his coat was used to deceive his father. So Jesus was given a false robe of royalty and mocked, and a crown of thorns was placed on his head. Then shortly after that, his garments were stripped from him once again, and, then, and they were bartered, uh, and they cast lots for them, the soldiers who crucified him. Before all this, however, in Matthew chapter 4, just like Joseph, Jesus was tested. After he had been anointed for his ministry, he was led out into the wilderness. And here the devil met him. And you recall this. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter, kids, who would the tempter be? Satan, very good, came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Why was Jesus tempted in this way? The first of three. Well, Jesus, as a second Adam, was satisfying the terms and conditions of covenant where first Adam failed. This is that act of obedience I was talking about before. Because Jesus obeyed the law of God, even at pain of himself. Even uh, when he went to the cross later, of course, at the ultimate pain that he endured, he obeyed the will of the Father. But here, at cost to himself, starving and famished, he nevertheless was perfect in his obedience, satisfying the probation or test. And this was necessary, that he, his righteousness, according to his active obedience, might be counted to our account, securing the righteousness that would be transferred, exchanged, or imputed to his own. That would be you and me if you know him today, on the basis of his perfect obedience to the law of God. What Joseph pictured in Genesis 39, Jesus gloriously fulfills in Matthew 4, Matthew 27, and then the sufferings. Humiliation and trial of Joseph include betrayal, probation, and suffering. We read of his sufferings. Uh, when he was thrown into the pit. Of course, he was thrown into another pit. There's this pit section of Joseph's life where he went from his brothers binding him and throwing him into that well to being uh, in bondage and slavery in Potiphar's house, to being thrown into another pit, which was the prison holdings from which he would arise. But before he did so, he spent some time down there, again, faithful to the Lord. These were the sufferings of Joseph and the purpose purposes of God, temporally speaking, these things, in a sense, were the cost for the salvation of his family. 
If Joseph had not gone to Egypt, he could not have spared them from famine. Without, this is the message, without the betrayal and suffering of the covenant son, there would be no hope for the family in the coming crisis. And so it is with Jesus. Without the betrayal and suffering and death on Calvary of the covenant son, there would be no hope for us. Turn to Matthew 27. In this passage, we pick up a course on the sufferings of Jesus. In Matthew 27, for instance, in verse 27, the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters. They gathered the whole battalion before him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. We mentioned before, twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head, put a reed in his right hand. Kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! They spit on him. They took a reed and struck him on the head. Imagine how that would feel. Striking against the crown of thorns, driving them deeper into his brow. The blood flowing down our Savior's cheeks as he necessarily was paying the price for our sins in all of this. And when they mocked him, they stripped him of his robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. We know what crucifixion is. That's the most cruel, excruciating, humiliating of all historic tortures, some might say, where you're stretched upon a cross, left to die by, not by your wounds, but by asphyxiation, as your legs eventually give out because you can't stand upon the nails one more time to receive a one more breath, but instead are choked to death on your own lungs collapsing under the weight of your own body, hanging there, of being humiliated for all the jeering crowds to see until you give up the ghost. This is the suffering of our Savior. And this is the cost of our redemption. And this was necessary. This was the betrayal and the horror and the scourging, the beating, the mockery, the blasphemy, and the death that the covenant son must endure as the, as the cost to save his people. So it's prophesied in the story, in the life uh, shape, the shape of the life of Joseph in his biography, but also explicitly in the prophets. We read of this in Isaiah 53, where, we, where the prophet tells us that by his stripes we are healed, that he was despised and rejected by men. And we turned away our countenance from him because we couldn't bear to look at him in such a gruesome and pitiful state. Similarly, in Psalm 22, the sufferings of Jesus are pictured poetically there as he is pierced and, 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 uh, and bruised for our transgressions, illustrated there as well. Incidentally, while Jesus himself was on the cross, identified himself as a fulfillment of this very passage when he cries out, Eloi, Eloi, Eli, Sabachthani, or however the, Eli, Eli, Lemai, Sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Straight from Psalm 22. This was the humiliation, the trial, the betrayal, the probation, and the suffering of our Savior that Joseph prefigured. But the story doesn't close here. Although Joseph's story is sad, it ends with his death, and there's no immediate resurrection apparent in the text. There's this promise, God will visit you, but when will that time come? <clears throat> We're left to wait at the close of Genesis. But there is a turn, of course, in the fortunes of all mankind, just as there was a turn in the fortunes of Joseph. And this brings up the third typological or symbolic chapter in Joseph's life. Favor and glory, humiliation and trial, and finally, exaltation and reign. 
The Messiah ascends, or that is to say, Messianic ascension, rising to rule and save. Exaltation. Where does this begin in Joseph's life? Back in chapter 41. So apologizing for all this flipping back and forth. And nevertheless, it's glorious to read it in context. Here we pick up in verse 37 on what happens after Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dream and gave him advice for the coming famine. 37, this proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? So here we have a pagan ruler recognizing the Spirit of God, Yahweh, resting upon his covenant son. 39, then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there's none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I've set you over all the land of Egypt. You see, exaltation and reign. Joseph took his, I'm sorry, Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand. This ring like a scepter would represent authority and glory of the sovereign, of the king. He took this signet ring from his hand. He put it on Joseph's hand. And notice, he clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. The robes of royalty are restored to Joseph in this moment. He made him, verse 43, his prior glory now returns. He made him ride in a second chariot. He is favored once again. They called out before him, bow the knee. Thus he set him, and as Pharaoh set Joseph, over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, not one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name zaphnath paneh and he gave him in marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On. So Joseph went over, went out over the land of Egypt. That last phrase, Joseph went out over the land of Egypt, is a picture of his dominion, of his reign. It's the extent of his rule. And this is the exaltation and then the, in the beginning of the reign of Joseph. Where was he before this happened? He was in a pit. Where is our Lord and Savior before he was resurrected to rule and reign? Also in the grave, if you will, in a pit. And so this was a resurrection of fortunes that Joseph experienced. This prison and pit used interchangeably in the text, denoting a significance in the life station. He goes from pit to prince, if you will, by the power of God's exalting hand, even under unbelievable and unimaginable circumstances, a miracle has happened. He's experienced something of a resurrection, at least in his fortunes. Underscores this dramatic change. In Matthew 28, 1 through 9, something more dramatic still and miraculous beyond what we could possibly imagine happens to Jesus Christ. Where is he? He's in a pit. He's in a grave. He's in a stone that's been carved out to receive the corpse of the dead. Verse 66 in Matthew 27, So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing with a stone and setting a guard. With sealed stone and sword of the guards in front of it, Jesus Christ, <clears throat> at this point in his humiliation and trial, has experienced betrayal, probation, suffering, and now death. Three days. What happens, kids? After Jesus is in the grave for three days, what happens? Amen. He rose from the dead, 28.1. After the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, two Marys, Magdalene and the other one, 
went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. Did he roll back the stone to let Jesus out? No, he's long gone. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. He rolled the stone back so they could see an empty tomb. His appearance, or, and for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Later, verse 9, behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came up, took hold of his feet, and worshipped him. The one who stooped so low as to take on the burden of our sin and be killed and buried for three days was exalted from the grave, was lifted out of that tomb by the Spirit of God, thus breaking the seal of Rome as the stone was rolled away, clattering the swords as the earthquake and lightning you know, threw back the guards. And the stone that once held him now was rolled away to reveal an empty tomb as Jesus had risen from the dead. And what is he worthy of on account of this? Worship. And so they worshiped him. We still worship him today, saints. Why? Because he is our exalted Savior. The messianic ascended one who arises to save and to rule. And he's ruling today. Of course, Joseph's fortunes changed. And with them, there was a coronation. But this was followed by redemption. Now, Joseph's story uh, when, what did he did when he reigned? Why did God place him in that position? Salvation in two ways. Number one, he would save the known world from the pestilence of famine. Number two, he would restore the family unity in the, in the covenant home, in the covenant household, as Joseph's brothers returned to Egypt one day. Of course, you know the story of how God used him during the seven good years of plenty to store up food that would save everybody from the ravages and pestilence of the coming hunger. But then Joseph's brothers, as a consequence, go to Egypt. There's a long exchange. There's a testing of where they're at. Joseph, through uh, chapters 42 through 45, um, here it's recorded his interaction with them. Finally, in verse 4, Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near and he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And he says, verse 5, And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years. And of course, he gives them instructions. Go get my father and everybody and come and I will take care of you. We're getting closer to our text today that we opened with. I wanted to touch upon it again, at least last week's test, uh, text in Genesis 50. Once Jacob has died, and with him, the hope of Jacob interceding between the brothers and their sins against Joseph. And now Joseph, they figure nothing's standing in the way between Joseph and them. Perhaps he will kill them, or worse, for what they've done. Joseph says in verse 17, or verse 18, his brothers came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. Joseph said to them, verse 19, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And then verse 21, So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. His brothers, who one time hated him so much, 
that they decided, okay, we'll have mercy upon him, we won't kill him, but we're going to sell him into slavery, benefit at the cost of what he's worth to these Ishmaelite merchants, send him away, never to see him again for decades. These brothers who treated him so in this kind of betrayal and selling him for the cheap price of 20 shekels of silver, Joseph provides for these same ones. Using his position, his exalted status, and the resources as second in command and the wisdom God has given him to take care of them and their little ones for as long as he reigned. He reigned 80 years, as far as I can figure. How old is he when he assumed the throne? 30 years old, just like our Lord Jesus when he took upon his ministry. And what was the bread that Joseph shared? The wisdom of God applied, allowed him the storehouses to take care of the covenant family in the known world, supplied daily bread for everybody during those seven years. But then there's a second picture of redemption. Joseph, because of the position he was in, he had the power to judge his brothers, but instead of that, he took upon himself their abuse, absorbed it, if you will, and extended to them forgiveness instead of judgment. And in so doing, the bond of the covenant family was restored. Jesus, when he ascends to rule and dies on Calvary, not only does he take care of our daily bread, not only in his sovereign providence does he take care of this whole world, bringing rain on the just and the unjust, and allowing us to live relatively comfortably, especially given what we deserve in this fallen world, but he, like Joseph, extends particular redemption. He saves a particular people. He saves his covenant family. That's what our Lord and Savior does. In his exaltation and reign, he arose to save and to rule, to rule the whole world and to extend the offer of salvation to his children. And so he does. Now in our text today, Joseph is about to die. He does die and it's recorded here. But before he does so, he says twice, verse 24, Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. There's only 80 years where the family could trust or depend, that is to say, on Joseph to take care of them and their little ones, and then he would die. Again, verse 25, Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones. Excuse me, my bones from here. Is all hope lost with the death of Joseph? Might seem so in the short term, for hundreds of years now, there is no prophetic word. And the next we hear of God's people, they're under slavery themselves to a tyrant king who did not remember Joseph. All is not lost. Why? Because of the promise, God will visit you. This is Joseph's faith in dying. Hebrews eleven twenty two, the author says, Joseph in the hall of faith was a good example of those who trusted in the Lord. In all of Joseph's life, this confession and the instructions to carry up my bones concerning his remains and death, this was a signal moment of faith that the author of Hebrews chose to highlight. Could have chosen all kinds of stuff in the course of Joseph's life. But he chose to highlight Joseph's faith in dying because in this instance, I submit to you, was the most important confession and prophecy in all of Joseph's life. These five words, God will surely visit you. When would this happen and how would we know? Well, in the short term, it does happen with Moses. God visits his people and does deliver them through Moses. But in the bigger picture, 
and in its fullness, it happens in Jesus Christ. God will visit you in Jesus Christ. And so he did. Now, this is the Emmanuel promise that Joseph no doubt learned from Jacob. Time and again, God promised Jacob, I will be with you wherever you will go. And this was the conviction of Joseph on dying. Though I am dying, though the consequences of sin will affect me, though I cannot rule and provide for you anymore, God will visit you. God will be with you. Emmanuel will come. One of the names of Jesus himself is Emmanuel. God with us. God will visit you. How will you know? Well, in part, the answer to this question is the life of Joseph himself. How will you recognize God when he comes? You'll recognize him by his prior favor and glory that he reveals in his teaching and in his miracles. God will visit you. How will you recognize him? You will recognize him in part by his humiliation and trial. He, like Joseph, will be betrayed, tested, suffer, and die. How will you recognize the Lord when he comes? You'll recognize him. Additionally, by his exaltation and reign, he will be resurrected and ascended. Acts chapter 1. He will take care of you, not only in supplying your daily bread, but he is the bread of life. And in him, you have eternal life because he died in your place. And in his death, he bore the cost of your redemption. This is the message of Joseph in, fulfilled in Jesus Christ. God will visit, and he surely has. And so when we look to this overview of some of the saints who've gone before, we see the gospel proclaimed and pictured. And gloriously, we can show or we can remind ourselves in the pages of the New Testament that this has come to pass. And I pray with this as a deeper appreciation and understanding of the glories of the gospel revealed and all the way, ways that God speaks to us through his word. Let us close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the beauties of salvation so gloriously pictured in your holy word. I pray that you would write them on the table of our hearts and that we would have a new and renewed and an extra appreciation for what Jesus has done for us. Thank you, Jesus, that though you could have enjoyed your favor, the favor of the Father and your pre-incarnate glory forever, that nevertheless you were obedient to your Father and taking upon yourself humiliation, trial, betrayal, probation, suffering, and death, the cost of our salvation. We thank you that you did not stay in the grave, but when you rose from the dead declaring victory over the last enemy, we have the hope of resurrection ourselves. You are exalted. You rule and reign. And we place our faith and allegiance for you. We thank you that we can trust you to take care of us and our little ones. Not because you will reign for 80 years, but you will reign forever and without end and will raise us from the dead to one day reign with you. Until that glorious day, give us faith like Joseph and more so on our journey from here to the promised land. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.